Welcome to the Coaching Manual Podcast. I'm Pavel Williams. In this episode, Cardiff City Academy Manager and one of the world's most respected coach educators, Dick Bay, describes the skills and qualities that make an exceptional coach. He explains when, why and how to use different coaching styles within your practice and he discusses many more of the tips he's learned during more than five decades at the heart of England's coaching hierarchy. Remember to visit thecoachingmanual.com for more expert interviews and to gain access to our video library. It includes hundreds of academy coaching sessions, all in broadcast quality video. To kick off our conversation, I asked Dick how he was introduced to coaching. First introduction to coaching, that's an interesting one. It would have been when I was at uh, university. Um, I was at St John's College, York, which which was a physical education college at that time. I won't tell you when, a few years ago. Uh, and you had to take uh, coaching awards. I remember you had to do dance. Can you believe that? You had to do dance, you had to do tennis, cricket, football. Um, and I'd always played football, always enjoyed playing football. Um, took those basic coaching courses. Uh, went to Sheffield and became a teacher. Was still playing um, as I was teaching. And just generally uh, got more and more interested and more and more involved in coaching um, at all levels. Um, I was playing in what was then the Midland League and then went into the Northern Premier League. Uh, and I met Howard, Howard Wilkinson, and we became good friends and still are, um, whilst I was teaching. And then the Sheffield schoolboys job, under 15s, right. came up and I was appointed to that. And I suppose that would be my first serious role uh, in coaching when I was a young teacher, although you had to take the school teams and things like that. So that's basically where it emanated from. What was football like in those days? Is it possible for somebody who's grown up with the game, you know, of the Premier League era, to kind of conceive what the game was like in those days? It must have been dramatically different. Yes, it was dramatically different. I mean, I was a young player at Sheffield Wednesday, and if you said to me, did they teach you anything? No. Did they coach you on anything? No. What did you do? Well, you went there on a Tuesday and a Thursday night, and you ran up and down the cop, and you... Um, you you passed a ball against a wall uh, in the underneath the stands, um, and you they yelled a little bit at you, they shouted a little bit at you, and you played on Saturday against the Sunderlands and the Sheffield Uniteds and people like that. So was it an education? No, it wasn't an education. Um, but football was always vibrant in Sheffield. It was always a great rivalry between United and Wednesday, and he used to go and watch United one week, Wednesday the next week, uh, and so it was always it always has been in Sheffield a passionate um, involvement. Uh, by Sheffielders uh, in one of the two teams but the football was um, it was exciting it was wholly different from what's the brand of football that's being played now um, but it just the great times wholly different as you could well imagine uh, there was nothing posh there were no academies there were no centres of excellence you signed a schoolboy form and as I say you went training two nights a week uh, played in what was then the Northern Intermediate League uh, but there was nothing um, educational about it or um, highbrow about it as it is now. Was it your relationship with Howard Wilkinson that, that kind of introduced you to the concept of the coach as a teacher? Um, well, I, I was qualified as a teacher, physical education teacher, so I was always interested in teaching. I enjoyed the actual act and art of teaching. Uh, and Howard just finished his football career at Brighton, uh, was at Boston United, so we played together at Boston United. And we used to travel and talk football two or three times a week with each other. Howard then um, qualified as a teacher at Sheffield Education College and he was involved in teaching as well but at that time you had people like Howard uh, there was people like John Adams who not many people would perhaps remember I don't know you would have Jack Detchen uh, and Sheffield was uh, in a sense the northern hotbed 
of coaching uh, as it was down in London. So you had Dario Grady, you had Roy Hodgson in that group, Mike Kelly, and it seemed as if there was one group in the south and one group in the north. And uh, you know, we, we all joined the Sheffield Coaches Association. I took on the role as secretary of Sheffield Coaches Association. Uh, John Adams was the North East Regional coach at that time. Jack came in to be the North East Regional coach. Howard was uh, involved in it all. There was just a, a general involvement of um, interested people in, in coaching in that part of the world. And at that point, were uh, there any coach education courses? Um, if you looked after a Sunday league team or, or a school team, was there a course for you to take or did that come a little bit later on? No, you, you only really had two awards that you could take. You had a preliminary coaching award and then you had what was called the full badge. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at that time and then uh, you know uh, for coaching was taken forward at the FA Alan Wade was my first boss the best teacher of the game I've ever come across wonderful teacher of the game and Charles Hughes uh, followed Alan he was a wholly different character but again in, the, in his own right um, a good proponent of a way to play and a good teacher of a way to play whether you agreed with that way was it was a different matter um but, it, but as I say, it just, just came from that group of people where you took things forward um, and teaching of the game, because I trained as a teacher, I understand the basics of teaching and just converted that into teaching the game of football. And how did that parlay into, um, you became coach educator for the North West region, was that, was that correct? Well, I, when I was in Sheffield, I used to take the um, preliminary, I, I got my full badge, <laughs> I took the preliminary coaching awards as they were at that time, and then they started to involve me on the A licence. I can remember going up to places like uh, Durham, because uh, they used to have the A licences in Durham, and they had them in London, and they had them at Lullershaw. And my introduction was to um, uh, to assist, in a sense, the A licence uh, courses. Uh, and that's where it started. And um, a job came up in the Northwest as Northwest Regional Coach, which I applied for, got the job. Even though I lived in Sheffield, I didn't relocate to Blackburn where the offices were, but I had a flat in Blackburn. And that was my first full-time, um, I won't say serious job, my first full-time involvement in coaching. In your time at the FA, uh, as you talked about, you had um, Alan Wade and then famously Charles Hughes had a, a very well-defined philosophy and, and the coaching courses were... Uh, intended to spread that philosophy around. Yes, in the later years at the FA, we kind of developed the future game, and it's a new style of play for the you know for the modern Premier League international class footballer. What 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 are some of the key differences between those two philosophies? Because it's quite a dramatic change, isn't it? Um, yeah, Alan was uh, was Alan Wade would have been a, a, um, a strong proponent of what was proposed in the future game. Alan's view on the game was an artistic, um, creative uh, way of playing the game. Charles was more um, functional, he was more direct in his thinking, um, he was pragmatic in his thinking. Uh, Alan, uh, sorry, uh, Charles left, um, Howard came on the scene. Howard was the first person that tried to link a coaching vision, a coaching philosophy. He tried to link what was done on the coaching courses with what was done with the national teams. Uh, and so you would go, Charles, you know, the, the topics or the sessions that Charles Hughes advocated and we had to conduct on the football. It was about direct play. It was about, you know, delivering balls into channels with accuracy, I might add. Mm-hmm. It was about pushing up and supporting and regaining possession and winning the ball and all those sorts of things, producing crosses and this, that, the other. Uh, now, a lot of it is is still uh, worthwhile, for sure. Uh, you know, being able to play the ball through teams and being able to play the ball forward with accuracy. Um, he never had any um, objections to anything like that. Although some people... Uh, interpreted some of his work in a, in a 
in a different way to others. But Alan was always advocating, people would call it good football, what they call good football. Howard came in, uh, had a way of playing, adopted a, a playing system within the national youth teams. I was the national youth team coach, at that, one of the national youth team coaches at that time. We played 4-3-3, generally speaking. We played out from the back. Uh, we would play through midfield, uh, this, that and the other. So where people have condemned uh, the FA for a lack of vision of how to play the football, Howard was there for, what, five, six, seven years. And we worked with the national teams around that around that philosophy. So uh, the future game was perhaps the first time that it was ever encased uh, in that, that philosophy was ever encased and, and edited and published and said, look, this is what we believe in. So that largely was the evolution of what became the future game. As the as the Premier League kind of grew in uh, stature and, and power throughout that time that you were working as a coach educator at the FA, was there any frustration or what were some of the challenges in um, spreading the FA's vision when an alternative um, organisation was looking after the majority of youth development? Um, it's only recent, I think, that the, the Premier League has, has, has advocated a certain way, uh, you know, the EPPP, mm -hmm. uh, of, uh, of developing players in this country. So when I first went to the FA, and, and that was the 1980s, I might add, uh, but when more recently I went to the FA in 1997, uh, the Premier League was just starting to get, it, went, it started in 1992, but their involvement in youth development and their involvement in changing the game and marketing the game and this and that, uh, has become more and more stringent uh, and stronger uh, over, let's say, the last decade rather than the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously it's only recently, within the last two or three years, that the EPPP has been um, advocated as a way of doing things. Uh, the, the FA still has the right, because of uh, UEFA and FIFA, to um, devise the coaching courses as it sees fit. The Premier League uh, is in the process of um, having CPD sessions for coaches, having conferences for, uh, uh, for coaches and trying to influence the way they think. Um, but I don't think there's a massive differential between what the FA believes uh, it should be teaching right the way through their range of courses and what the Premier League would also um, adapt and say, yeah, we, we agree with that. You're now on the other side of the fence, um, and you, you have to implement the the EPPP um, in your role at Cardiff. Yeah. Um, what what does having a structure like the EPPP and the extra contact hours especially mean for an academy like Cardiff? Um, the extra hours are welcome. Um, whether it should be, as they say, you know, moulded or melded on the uh, the ten thousand hours concept is another matter. There are many people that disagree with that, and of course, there's a couple of books that's come out as well. Long, and it's not about ten thousand hours. Where do, where do you stand on that? Just quickly. Uh, I agree with with both. I, we all need, we always needed to increase the amount of contact time that we had with the players, but we always needed to increase the amount of contact time we had the players with. Great teaching. So just increasing the number of hours it, it, it is not necessarily the remedy, providing it's great teaching um, that's taking place and great uh, you know care over players in their development in their people call it holistic development you know, through their mental attitudes and through their spiritual. Um, beliefs and things like that. Um, so that that's all part and parcel of that. I agree with that, but I also believe that uh, there is a genetic, a massive genetic influence on what players, uh, how far they can go uh, in certain aspects. So, um, a proponent of ten thousand hours. Well, the the the, um, the essence of what they're saying, improve the hours that players spend. Always agreed with that. Uh, whether it's predominant and you can turn a an, very normal and average player into a god, well, I wouldn't go with that one. I actually was lucky enough to interview Daniel Coyle, the author of The Talent Code, and um, he admitted himself, he's a little bit frustrated that the three elements of the book, 
two are completely ignored and, and one being the environment is crucial it has to be the correct environment yeah. and the type of challenge the type of practice yes. mostly ignored as well so yes. he'd actually agree that the 10,000 hours turning a very ordinary player into an exceptional player was never the message of certainly his no. model anyway so well, it's what, a shared what, what happens with people is if they've got a message to sell they oversell it so that it really hits mm-hmm. people strongly and then I noticed that many many I mean, throughout, throughout my years in football and through my life people will advocate a very, very a strong idea and they'll throw it at you and they'll advertise it and then they tend to withdraw from it. And it's a selling, it's a selling um, process that they go through. Um, and that's happened within the FA and it's happened uh, in other instances not been involved in the room. One of the conversations we had recently um, amongst members of the coaching manual is that there's a frustration that a lot of the coaches who are the keenest to learn um, latch onto an idea the most strongly and yes, they, they reject other ideas. Is that yes. something you came across when you were teaching coaching courses? No, but I think over the last five, six, seven, eight years, however long it's been, there's, there's been advocates who say, let the game be the teacher. And I'd be a bit more careful about that because what you're finding now where there are many, many coaches who just stage a game and hope or expect that players will learn without any infusion of ideas or um, offerings from the coach. They just stage games and that's it. The players will learn from that. And I wholly disagree with that. Um, so that's one thing that's been modified well let the game be the teacher yes but under certain circumstances now let the game be the teacher for the coach I wholly agree with Um, because uh, again we're having this uh, what's the word confusion between different types of coaching practices that you should never ever use practices unopposed why not if you want to develop the biomechanics of striking a ball over certain distances and certain um, biomechanical movements that a player should make, well, there's no reason why you can't isolate it and build it up in a, in a, on a post-practice. Um, then you move it forward into skill practice, then you might take it into game practice, then you might take it into the game. So I think there's a process, almost an elevated process, of how you would uh, move through. Uh, developing players and young players through this unopposed practice right the way through. But there's some advocates who say you should never do anything that's un- unopposed, which I don't agree with. When you come to um, now interview, uh, observe sessions and, and ultimately recruit a coach for the academy, what are some of the um, kind of qualities and skills that you're, you're most excited about seeing within that, within that coach? Well, the best coaches I've come across, and it's uh, everybody uses the word, they are passionate about what they do. I mean, I've got two or three coaches here, it's their life. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all, I think they think they're put on this planet to be a coach. That's it. It is their uh, vocation. It's not a vocation. It's their life. And you can tell in, in their conversations, even in the casual conversations that you have when you're eating, there's something about them that says, it's, only, it's, it's for me. That is it. I, I, I am a coach because I just love this game I'm fascinated by the game I have a great passion for this game more than any other facet of my life uh, so those are the ones that I'd look for that, that, that reflect that when when you talk to them when you see them work uh, they need to have an enthusiasm uh, about what they do that is electrifies the players that they're working with uh, for me they need to understand the fine detail of what's necessary in performance and to help players to understand the fine detail and to acquire that fine detail so that passion, and I don't like using that word, but yeah, I hope you understand what I mean. Uh, a sheer passion for it, uh, an excitement about what they do, great teaching skills in the sense that they can take each player, they may be working on the similar concept, but they can take each player, 
and interpret it in a language that suits each player and that each player understands. Um, and so language and skills are, are vital. Communication skills, including language and skills, I think are vital. And of course, a, a very deep and ingrained understanding of the levels of the game. If you're a beginner coach who aspires to work in the professional game um, and you feel passionate, you're willing to put the hours in, you're willing to put the, um, you know, the volunteer hours in, the time, the expense for courses even, yourself, how do you prioritise you know, areas to work on? Is there, um, I don't think there are any shortcuts, I don't expect you to say there's any shortcuts, but is there certain aspects there you would say for a beginner coach, just concentrate on this for the first six months and, and it's going to dramatically improve your coaching more so than certain other areas? I think if they can find a mentor or someone that can help them early in their career, that would help. If they can um, record the sessions that they do, sit down with a, a mentor who understands coaching, not just somebody who wants to offer an opinion, although sometimes that can be uh, helpful as well, but somebody who really understands coaching, then that may well be a good way to make progress early. So having a mentor, having somebody who's prepared to sit down and advise you, uh, not necessarily tell you, but advise you what he, what he sees and, and what he thinks you may well do, uh, that would be important. I think studying the game, really, really studying the game. Now, if you're a beginner coach, um, have a look at the skills and techniques adopted by the world's greatest players and try and understand them. Because if you don't understand them and you can't make sense of them, you can't actually then teach to, to other players. Uh, go and visit and go and watch whenever you possibly can. Great teams play and great coaches work. Um, I can remember in my time, I used to, I lived in Sheffield and... Um, Terry Venables was the coach at uh, Crystal Palace and I can remember finishing teaching at four o'clock in the afternoon and driving down to Crystal Palace to watch um, Crystal Palace play because there was something about them <coughs> that was different uh, from all the other teams. They were, they were much more uh, inventive, they were probably more cerebral, they understood what they were trying to do, what they were trying to achieve with the players that they had and they were a good little learning catalyst for me. I would go and watch the, the great coaches. You know, go and spend some petrol money and if Don Howe unfortunately Don's in a century retired from coaching I would go and watch Don Howe wherever I could I'd go and watch Dario although he was almost a contemporary of mine uh, work um, go and watch Howard work go and watch as many um, reasoned and, and experienced coaches you can go um, try and filter off whatever you can from whatever they say any type of session I mean I can remember when I was in Sheffield I used to go and watch Alan Hodgkinson work at Sheffield United because I wanted to know more about goalkeeping. So if you can get a mentor, that would be a great help. If you could record the sessions that you do and listen to what you say, observe how you get the messages across and watch yourself, your body language and things like that, that would be a help for you. Uh, but you would need some advice as to what might be good material and what might be worth dropping. Watch the great coaches, watch the great teams, watch the great games. What do you look for when you go and watch a, co a coaching session if you... Um, you've got so experience, so much experience now. Um, you might maybe people perceive that you don't learn anything by watching a session, but other coaches have told me that no matter who, even a bad session, they learn a lot from. But what would you look at now when you are observing a session uh, within the academy or even on you know grassroots on a Sunday? Well, probably the first thing would be how does the coach handle the group? How does the coach handle the players? I want to talk about organisation because you, you say, well, organisation is a foundation. If you're not got your organisation right, you're likely to run up against problems at some stage or the during the session. Mm -hmm. So if the organisation is okay and it allows uh, the coach and the players uh, to work on whatever it is that they're working on, I'd watch the coach and say, right, now then, how does he handle the group? His way with the group. 
How does he handle individual players? His language and his eye contact and all that sort of thing. What does he do? Does he fully understand what he's after? Um, can he take it at the right tempo? So sometimes you can move quickly through a session because they can grab that no problem. Other times you take your time because it needs to be understood clearly before you move on to the next phase. So does he understand about what he's teaching? Does he understand about the teaching process? Where I can't take this too quickly. Some will take it quickly, others will take it slower. So I just need to be a bit careful in the tempo that I work at. Um, does he allow them um, to make errors? Does he allow them thinking time? Does he then bring them in from time to time, but not overly excessively, and discuss what their thoughts are, discuss what they're doing? And, and it's just a general um, teaching manner, coaching manner, that the coach fully understands the detail and what's necessary to take forward and fully understands the process of teaching. As a grassroots coach who puts on a lot of sessions but doesn't always get to observe myself or if I go and observe other sessions... Um, I might aspire to you know, reach the quality of certain academy sessions or, or even great grassroots coach sessions. How do I measure my own success? How do I determine whether my own session was effective or not? Is there you, any tips you could use to... You may have an assistant coach who, who would give you some form of feedback. You know, like, um, I, I felt you should have you know, lowered your voice there or I felt you might have moved quicker to this point. You may have that. Um, I think something inside you tells you uh, whether it's a good session, whether you feel it's a good session, did it flow? Uh, did I make the points I wanted to at the right time? Or sh you know, reflect? It's, it's, it's self-reflection, really. You're looking back and saying, right, look at my organisation again. Did I get bogged down in this? Uh, was it smooth? Did it lead to what I wanted to move on to? Uh, did it allow the players to interpret what I was working on to their advantage? Uh, so have a look at your organisation. You'll have this feel about how you performed. Was I? Did I come over as being certain? and come over as being an authority? Or do I know that actually I said one or two things and I wasn't quite sure what I was saying, or I did one or two things and I wasn't quite sure what I was doing? How did they work? And speak to your players. They'll, they'll, the thing about players is they'll tell you what they think you want to know. Um, ask them if they could teach that session. Well, go on then, I'll give you five minutes. You teach him how to be a better passer of the ball, or you teach him about dribbling. So registering what you said is one thing. Being able to register what you said, convert it and interpret it into something that you understand clearly and could probably teach somebody else on. That might be a little way that they can start to do that. I think one of the key aspects when you get to, um, certainly when kids have hit, hit secondary school, uh, they've gone through a technical development phase and they're ready to learn a little bit more about the game, about the intricacies of the game. So as a coach, you need to take the step forward and start talking about the shape of the team mm -hmm. and introduce some tactical elements. What would your advice be for a coach who's sort of making that leap up? It's going a little bit beyond the level two thing and it's you know, looking at a broader aspect mm -hmm. of coaching. Well, what two things really. Uh, no way, have an idea and try and know where you think the game is going to go because you, you'll have your team for now. You might have them for a couple of years. Um, and if you're rational about it, you're saying, well, these lads, you know, they're never going to be pros. I just don't, they haven't got that capability. So you're working off a different measure there. But if you've got some potentially good players, you say, so, you know, you go to the academies in England, some of the academies in England, you say, right, uh, he's a 16-year-old boy. Where's the game going to be in, uh, let's say, nine, ten years' time when he's 26, 27? You're preparing him for that. And so I think being futuristic in your um, understanding of where the game's likely to go uh, will help you in to 
working with players in a sense to prepare them for the game. So for instance at the moment uh, it's, a, it's a possession game largely, um, there's very little time on the ball these days, you're going around about two seconds, two touches, uh, things like that. Uh, the best players are 90% possession players, uh, there are implications there for defenders, they're going to have to move quicker, decide quicker, etc, etc, etc. Am I preparing my players to play in a game like that? Now if you're not, you, you, you're not preparing them for whatever it's going to be. Uh, most teams now will play from the back, not all of them, most teams now will play from the back. They'll, they'll try and play through midfield in some form or other and they'll try and bring in their player, their attacking players either in front of the defence or behind the defence. Okay, now we all know that. So how do you do it with the group that you've got? And you need to be realistic about what you think their potential is uh, in adopting certain game tactics. So can they all, do they understand about playing out of the back? So most goalkeepers throw the thing out. But there's other ways of starting attacks other than just rolling it out to the centre-backs. Uh, are your centre-backs capable of starting the game that you want to play? Or are they um, risky, well not risky, are they going to get caught regularly in possession? And can you help them over that phase? Uh, how are you going to go through midfield? Uh, people talk about rotation these days, but is rotation always necessary? May or may not be. So the coach understanding where the game's going, where it's likely to go, what that means to these players that you're working with now, what level are they at and therefore what do I need to work on with them? Uh, and having a way, a way of playing, you know, people call it a philosophy, a way of playing that you fully understand, that you think they can fully understand and implement. So when it comes down to the planning, how do you separate that out over the course of uh, 10 years of development? There's obviously an impetus to, to rush certain aspects that are effective in games sometimes. But how patient can you afford to be or, or how much uh, slack can you give players before you can step in and make a coaching decision within a, you know, within a sort of tactical session? Um, it depends how far you are along with what you, you've worked on. So, I mean, here and presuming in many other academies, how long does it take players to fully understand how to play out from the back? So, uh, by the time they're 12, 13, 14, I would have thought they would fully understand the principles and the uh, the precepts of how we can play out from the back and when we can't. Now, if they don't, the question is why not? So, would you need to continue that aspect of playing great depth as they go through 17, 18, 19, or is it more just, a, well, this is what we do, we accept that, we understand that, we know where we are with that, we know we're competent at that, but these are aspects of the game that we need to spend more time on uh, if we're going to build off what we've already built on. For instance, playing out in the back, if you understand what I mean. Uh, and it's a case of just progressing it and moving it forward slowly in a way that they fully understand that suits them and suits what's going to happen in the future that takes them towards that game, I think. In terms of how you would then split that up over the course of um, 10 years, so you would actually start with, okay, well, our foundation will be playing out from the back and we'll build everything on top of that. So you'll come back and you'll reinforce those ideas, you know, year after year after year with a little bit. Yeah. Within an individual session, would you allow, you know, a mistake 80% of the time, 60% of the time, if you, you know, need to put a number on it? Yes. At what, at what point would you step in and say, we need to be doing this right now. We're going to. We're going to well, I think that's it. part of the art of the coaching that you probably won't learn on coaching courses, and you probably, you probably won't learn through reading books. I think feeling a session is one thing. So you've got your organisation, you've got your players, you've got your idea. You're going to work on it, um, and the art of it is just understanding. Well, how much do they really understand? How much do they fully understand? Do I need to go and help this player now because he's not making any sense of what we're talking about? 
And if I can enlighten him, then you should do so. If you say, well, he's nearly there, you could probably leave him alone and say, well, I'm sure he's going to come onto this one in the next couple of minutes or the next three or four occasions that we do this. So that's the, that's the art of coaching, just understanding the session, feeling where the players are. And if you need to go in, go in. If you don't need to go in, um, then step aside, knowing that you think he's almost there. And that's that art, I think, of coaching. That uh, I mean, I was once on an A-licence course and the lad said to me, he said, uh, how often should I go in? Because somebody told me I've got to go in 20 times during a session. <laughs> now, that was uh, a point of discussion with him and a point of discussion with the group. Um, and, and young coaches mustn't put a figure on it. I must go in six times. I must go in 10 times. I must go in 20 times. I must never go in and leave the game. Let them learn from the game. And I think it's uh, it's finding out about the arts of coaching, when is the right time to step in and what to say. And when is the time just to pull them out of a session and say, look, you've done well there, but think about this the next time you do that and put him back in the session or when you just leave them. Do you think it helps to specify there are five coaching styles or seven coaching styles? Or as somebody's told me recently, 17 different coaching styles. There's an American, so you can probably imagine he subdivided them, but is that helpful to make those distinctions that this is a style of coaching, this isn't a style of coaching, or do you feel like it's, it's just a never-ending continuum that could be broken up into an infinite number of different well, styles? Well, I think so. I mean, I don't care how many coaching styles you've got. You can have five, you can have 17. Now, I've seen documents with 30, 40 uh, different things that are criteria of a certain coaching style. The essence is you can actually use four or five different coaching styles by making one point. So if I want to make a point to a fullback, about playing the ball, I can tell him, now play it down the side, play it down the side of their fullback so that our strikers can move on to it, so I'm telling him, ask him a question, how do you think you're going to do that, that's a different coaching style, okay, show me that you can do it, there's another style, next time you get it, I won't say a word, you do it, so you're using three or four different coaching styles, for want of a better word, uh, in making one particular aspect, I think it's useful to know the effects of what those styles would be. So if you want to stop the session and ask a question, I mean, I, I, was, I couldn't believe I saw somebody coaching six months ago. And he said to this kid, he said, look, if you're not going to play with your left foot, which other foot are you going to play with? And I couldn't believe what I heard. And it's that kind of stupidity where he obviously hadn't considered the question properly and the response that he was looking for or could guide the player towards. Now, it's when you get into that nonsensical repetition of question after question after question after question that I find irritating. I'd find it irritating of a player. Now, for me, you'll ask a question at the right time and you'll pursue that question. Okay, now, what do you think you can do in this circumstance here? Well, I could do this, 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 this and this. Of course you could. Which do you think is the best one here? Uh, why? Is there not a better alternative? What about doing that? And I'll tell you why. Or you tell me why you think you can do that. Or why that's the best option because of whatever it may well be. And it's asking the question leading towards, in a sense, the most positive answer. So when you, you say, let the game be the teacher, and uh, the coach goes in, he said, okay, stop there. Uh, now, why do you, uh, what, what could you do here? Now, the player can give you five or six different options. Okay, which are you going to do? I'll do that one. Okay, you play that one then. And in fact, the coach could be actually working with him working on probably what is the worst thing he could possibly do, but never guides him towards what is the prime solution under that circumstance. And it's all about decision-making. So how do we help a player to make a decision? What's the criteria for making the best decision? And I'm not sure that coaches are very good at that. They'll offer them the options, but making the prime decision, the most functional, the most effective decision, 
they're not very good at that. Either they don't know or they're unwilling to guide the player because they've got this mantra about let the player make the right decision. Another point you make about questioning for questioning's sake um, is important because I've seen that a lot at grassroots. Um, Certainly using closed questions or um, not even really presenting options, just you you want you know what you want to hear. Yeah. How much um, how much of that comes into the session planning process? Do you actually plan questions, challenges, yeah. well, as well? Oh, I think so. Um, I talked about the art of coaching a moment ago. Knowing when to ask a question, knowing what the question should be, knowing how you should couch that question is vital, uh, and understanding what he's saying and what he's thinking, and guiding his thinking towards a different alternative. Perhaps that will be the art of it. If you want to ask a good question, I would say, okay, now what do you think we should do here? Uh, and he says, yeah, I'm going to play there, okay? And it's the best option. And why is that a good idea? Well, because it means that the winger can go forward. Okay, good. And what's that likely to do? Well, it could get us in a good attacking position and we can maybe produce a cross in the box. And how does that affect you? Well, it means I can push up behind the player as well. So if you ask a question and the boy's on the right trend, just keep using the word and what does that do for us? And why do you think you should do that? And what are you going to do after that? Now that is drilling down inside his mind and saying, well, that's expanding the idea. And that for me would be proper question. Not just that, there's a, there's a, well, there, there's a, you know, a thought for the coach. Just keep using the word and only two or three times and see where it takes him and you. So also reiterating the, not just the action there and then within the session, does he play the ball in the right direction, the right way, but also the reason why, and it yes. comes back to that decision-making process. That's right, time. and where you take your action. What your action, what are the consequences of your action for you, for other people, and how do you move it game? Yeah, things like that. So one of the benefits of having, um, something we use a lot of small-sided games within academy training, so it's not to dismiss that, games can be used to develop understanding. It's purely to say there's a time and a place and they have different functions. So, yes. so just to balance that one out a little bit, if you've got, um, you've asked a few questions of a player, he's made the right decision with your help, then he makes the wrong decision the next occasion within a small-sided game. Is that, for you, an opportunity to go in and coach or would you kind of hold back a little, wait and see if he figures it out? Well, it could be if it's vital mm-hmm. to the session. So, for instance, if you're working on, um, I don't know, you might be working on turning with the ball and you've done some uh, preparatory work with turn, then they go into the game um, and player doesn't turn when he's got a great opportunity to turn, I would suggest you stop it there and say, look, now we've just been working this. You know the circumstance you're in, or you should. You can turn there. Keep your tight turn, keep your touch tight, keep it a tight turn. Now it opens up the field for you to go forward. So if you've been working on something and he can't see it, within the game. So you might have been working on a post-practice, you might be working on a very simple post-practice, um, and then it goes into the game, you've got to take what you've worked on and show him how it functions in the game. So are you actually looking for the clarity of the picture within the game? If it's a very muddy picture and it could have been, could not have been the right decision, maybe then hold off and leave it. But if there's a really clear opportunity where that he should have recognised the picture yes, was, yes. this is the decision, Yeah, use yeah. that as a guide. And he needs to understand the criteria when he can turn. So has he got space? Has he created space? Does he know how much space he's got? Does he know that if he turns, he's turning into some form of uh, circumstance you know, where somebody's closing him down or nobody's going to close him down? What's the criteria for his decision-making? Why did you not turn then? Or, you know, great opportunity to turn because of... So if you understand, he's un- you're trying to help him to understand the facets or the criteria by which he makes decisions. Or somebody's closing me down. 
where you can still turn there if you keep your touch tight. But if you feel under severe pressure, give it to somebody else, find another position, and then maybe you can turn a bit later. Those things. Could you ask the players to do anything in the week in between training sessions that would help them to reinforce that that idea, decision making? Yeah. Did you set the boys homework from the academy? Did, do you encourage them to watch games? And if so, what do you ask them to look for? Yeah, well, we have a library here uh, of um, a million and one different things that we, that we look at. So uh, we, we, we clipped together um, recently a little DVD of uh, the boy called um, Ike Munyan, who plays for Atletico Bilbao. Now, his energy and his... his um, his willingness to find a pocket of space somewhere in midfield is a great example to our younger players. You know, you, you can't just stroll around midfield. He's got great, not running frantically. He's, he knows what he's searching for and he knows how he's doing it. Then we've got another one of Soldado. Soldado came down here to play for Tottenham and his movement across the front um, was terrific and his movement off the front was excellent. And so what we do is we clip games together from the first team plays, uh, or Real Madrid playing, Barcelona playing, we stack up a library. And we would use those on a regular basis to show those players what it is that we're after and when it happens. Those sort of things. They are given homework. And they're asked to go and do certain things and they are given a test probably monthly or now they're making progress or not. Uh, and they have training diaries whereby they keep a diary of how much they do, where they do it and when they do it and what they do away from the club. How much has technology helped um, develop the coaching as a practice, um, even in the last 10 years, but especially in the last five years, with the advent of smartphones and the, the explosion of the internet? Significantly. Uh, uh, to answer your question, I, mean, I can remember, <laughs> the first time I ever tried it was with what they call a Betamax um, video system. And it was either Betamax or it was, um, what's the other system? The VHS. VHS. And I bought Betamax and they lost the race and everybody bought VHS. But I can remember doing it ages ago where you just want to you know, put your DVD in, or your, it was then your, your tape, put your tape in, stop it, try and edit it if you could. So that was years and years ago, so it's always been around. Now it's highly sophisticated now, as you know. Uh, we use iPads here, so the coach will take his iPad out and um, I think they're called iPads. He'll take his iPad out and he'll, he'll watch the session and he'll video the session or he'll video a player, pull the player in, have a look at this, what do you think? Let me see, and I stop it there. Look, you think you could have turned earlier, let the ball run across your body and this sort of thing. So we'll use all that. All the games are, and they will be in all the other academies. All the games are analysed uh, statistically. All the games are analysed and edited um, for the visual things. So it's everybody, certainly within the professional game, uses it to a high standard. What are the benefits from a player's point of view of being able to see um, their own performance almost instantaneously compared to even a delay of three, four days. Does it make such a big difference that they see it there and then, particularly to relate to the practice and um, yeah. some of pictures? Yeah, because it's like a coaching point. So if you take an iPad out and you, you, you video, I'm, I'm working with you on turning, um, I can let you do it. I don't need to go into the session, interject in the session. But after 10 minutes, I okay, stop, in you come, let me show you this. And it's just another way, a form of expression of coaching point. So you tell him and show him is one thing. Actually seeing him doing or not doing it is another. So it's just a simple coaching point that he can't deny because there's your movement. He can't question because, well, he could question. He, he can't question in one sense uh, because there I am doing it. Now, he might want to contest what you said. Well, I did. No, you didn't. But there it is. In, but that's always been the case, the visual evidence. Do you find that players are more aware of, um, you talked about using uh, Atletico Bilbao or Real Madrid Barcelona, do you find that players are more aware of the world game than they were 
kind of a decade ago and previous some years. are not as many as should be so if I was to bring let's say the under 16s in here or you bring the under 18s in I said did you watch Atletico Bilbao last night did you watch uh, I don't know Lyon no if you ask them the names of players very few of them have got them under the belt uh, which implicates that they don't actually watch as much football as they should <laughs> and could I would imagine most families have got Sky and but one or two of them will do I mean, I've got a, a winger here who's, who's sharp as a razor, very quick uh, and we'll give him a task I want you to watch this player and he's playing here it's on Sky it's on BT however all the different stations they've got these days come away and tell me what he's done tell me what he does another one the full back okay I want you to watch three full back I want you to watch Valdez not Alves rather at Barcelona I want you to watch the other one at um, the left back at um, Real Madrid the Brazilian boy tell me what you think great aspects of great players some of them will some of them are reluctant they don't spend enough time watching good stuff it's interesting because with um, the grassroots teams which I look after and my experience with um, looking after especially under eights even they're so aware of players of teams of, yeah. of everything so it's interesting that lads who are in the academy system are indifferent sometimes and, and some are you know, really into it it's interesting they'll watch some games whether mm-hmm. they study them deeply enough and study the people who are playing for want to better at that time in their position that's another matter now the other thing of course is do they understand what they're looking at? Do they understand what they're looking for? <laughs> so it's easy for to say, look, we'll watch Real Madrid's left back. I think it's Marcelo. Watch him playing against, uh, I don't know, Real Betis tomorrow. Tell me what you see in him. Now, do they know what they're looking for? Uh, and there's an education, teaching them what, you know, to try and observe what other people do to bring it into their effort. Just to come back to the, the EPPP and, and the now looking after Cardiff's Academy, um, we talked about how the extra contact hours are certainly warranted. Um, as long as the quality's there, yeah. we should see an improvement in the quality of player. Um, will we see genuinely world-class players coming through? Will we see more Premier League-class players, but will we see more international world-class players coming through the academy system, do you think? Well, the hope is uh, that you would. Uh, the, um, the time that you're given gives you an opportunity to um, further their performances. But that's not to say world-class players haven't come through before because people say Rooney's world-class. People say Gerrard is world-class. People say Wilshire is going to be world-class. So you know, they have been coming through. People say we're not in abundance. Okay. Um, here, uh, we, it's a Welsh club. We're trying to um, stimulate the thought of being Welsh and being different. Uh, and we're trying to encourage players here to make certain that they play for Wales. Um I mean, Atletico Bilbao have the greatest respect for. They just take Basque players. You know, they've mm-hmm. never been out of their Premier League for 18 years, I yep. think it is. And we're trying to attach that kind of allegiance to Wales and that kind of allegiance to the city of Cardiff and the region uh, to try and help them come through that. Um, and what we have to do is to educate them um, what it takes to get and to be an international player, what the uh, what the sacrifices are. Um, what the aims are, what the goals are, firstly to make that, and then if you can get world class, that'd be terrific. If the whole thinking mentality of the coaches in this club was about world class, you would, I'd be highly delighted about that. But of course, what is world class? So the time would give you um, probably more opportunity. The quality of the teaching, uh, the quality of the, um, the games programme that you provide, um, the opportunity to step people up when it's necessary and step them down when it's necessary that, but that's not to say that's not been done in the past um, there are other inventive ideas that I think could help them um, 
so the aim would be world class. The aim is to be international class here, and the aim is to play for Wales and Cardiff City in the Premiership here. If you were a grassroots coach in in Wales or in England, you could conceivably play a role in, in leading to an international player, but it's highly unlikely the vast majority of players aren't going to reach that level. Yeah. What do you think is a realistic ambition for a grassroots coach? What should their focus be? Um, I suppose the grassroots coach, it depends what you mean by grassroots, because grassroots can be non-league football played by adults, can't it? it seems. Sure. I, I, I imagine that I you're presume. talking about younger football. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I suppose, what's the next step up? So if there's a young boy in Cardiff who's seven years old and he's playing for Whitchurch Rangers, what's the next step up for him? Does he stay at Whitchurch Rangers, which is a local club, or does he try and move on to maybe uh, somebody like Port Talbot, you know, which is a Welsh um, Premier League team, their youth system? So that might be his aim. He'll always have the dream. And it was interesting about dreams because I read something about Sachin Tendulkar the other day and he was, he's going to retire, the greatest, probably the greatest cricketer I've ever seen live. And he said, every day of my life I dreamed about playing for India. And then he said, every single day of my life that I've lived, I've dreamed about playing for India. So he always had this, um, this task, this dream, this goal of playing for India. Now, even the boy at Whitchurch Rangers, eight year old, has he got a dream of playing for Cardiff City? How does he do it? Well, he'll take the steps. He'll go from Whitchurch, maybe to Port Talbot or to um, Haverford West. And I can't speak the language very well. You know, to one of those uh, Welsh clubs. And then he steps up and steps up and steps up. Or, you know, somebody recommends him to come to Cardiff Academy. His first step would be to come to Cardiff City or Swansea City's Academy, depending on where he's located. Mm-hmm. So he has that little dream. There's my first step. And once he reaches that next level, what... Even with the E-Triple P in place, what are still the challenges that, that remain for you in, in bringing more players through to the to the first team squad? Uh, the challenges for me or the challenges for him? The challenges for you as, a, as an academy, yeah. with you as the head. The challenges for us are quite simply to prepare him for what's going to be the game in the future. Um, if our coaches or if we just do what we are doing now, we will produce players for now, uh, which will leave them short of being able to take part in a game five, six, seven years down the line, which the hope is that they're going to play for Cardiff City's first team, they're going to have to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's our that's our curriculum as such, thinking forward, thinking what's going to happen, not just working on the basics and the orthodox and the ordinary, uh, but taking into more extreme techniques, more extreme skills, because that's what you're going to need. Quick, extreme skills. That's what we think you need, the ability to read the game quickly, the ability to make decisions quickly. The ability to use both feet and you know get the ball out of your feet quickly and nick a pass off with the outside of your foot, um, to bend passes, to float passes, to drive passes, things like that. Because that's what you've got to develop and you've got to have if you're going to have a chance of playing firstly in the Premiership and secondly at world-class level. So we're into that. And, and it, it literally is to say to the junior players, right, your first step really now at 14, 15, your first aim is, your dream is to play for Cardiff City, your first step is to become a scholar. When you're a scholar, your first step is then the next step is to become an under-21. Once you've got in the under-21 squad, can you get in the under-21 team? Once you're in the under-21 team, your next step has to be thinking first team. So mm-hmm. always trying to give them an incentive and a goal to go for, but realistic and preparing them to reach that goal by what you do out on the field or in the classroom. For everyone here at the club in Cardiff, the hope is that they'll remain and will grow as a Premier League club for the, for the future. So if you were an under-21 player last season or the season before, has your challenge suddenly got you know exponentially more difficult because you're trying to break into a Premier League team? Yes, it becomes significantly harder because of the, the quality of the players that are playing in the Premiership, both in our team and in other people's teams as well. 
Um, and a step is what we do and what other clubs do is to put them out on loan uh, for a period. Mm-hmm. But there's always a little danger there that people go out on loan and they sit on the bench or they, they play minimum football, minimal football. So we have to put certain impositions on the borrowing club that you know you must play this number of games or, and they agree to that, we'll let them go. If not, you probably won't. So that would be the logical steps for them to take. If they can't get immediately into our first team, can they slide sideways and take a step forward by going into somebody else's team and playing on a regular basis on loan? And it's now a global game. Yes. Do the academy players um, risk it almost going to the head a little bit? Now they represent um, a Premier League club that comes with a lot more money, a lot more attention, a lot more fame. Is it difficult to kind of keep a lid on that, keep the kids grounded and, and keep them in the place? Um, not here, because Malky, uh, Malky's very stringent on uh, discipline and keeping your feet on the ground and having a sensible head. Mm-hmm. And um, is it a strict regime with the first team? Well, strict. It's an organised and disciplined regime and anybody that steps out of line will certainly find out about it and know about it. So one of the major priorities of the club is to keep people's feet on the ground, to know what we want to be, to know where we want to go but to keep people's feet on the ground as we move in that direction. And if anybody shows any signs of uh, not being with us, going in that direction, um, and wanting to be a bit of a big hitter, then he'll be told very, very quickly. One of the um, criticisms that's been levelled at academies in the past is that there's far too many boys uh, drop out and then they leave the game altogether. Is there anything you could put in place, or is there anything that is in place here at Cardiff to help the boys who have worked their way up that tier, who then need to drop back down the tiers? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we'll always help them if a boy is released here. Uh, we'll always speak to the family and speak to the parents who bring them in and talk to them individually uh, as a family and as a boy. And we'll always try and help them to another club. And if at any time they want to come to us for advice or they want to come to us for some form of guidance, we're always going to be there for them. And I don't know what else you could actually do other than helping them to uh, pursue their career, perhaps in a different direction at a different club, but always being there for them if they need us or want us. And quite a few of them do. You know, they'll come back and ask this question, what do you think now, what do you think now, now that I'm at somewhere else? And we'll always try and help them and assist them if we can. Is it difficult to manage expectations while we're in the academy? Because you need to be so confident in order to be able to reach that level of Premier League football that it's hard to simultaneously manage expectations and let them know that they probably won't make it to that level. Well, they're very clear. We're very clear with them. I mean, we have a, at the beginning of every season, we have a parents' evening and the players come as well. And we explained to them, you know, that uh, less than 40% of all players playing in the Premiership are English. Um, I think it was a recent uh, research said that uh, the average playing time uh, in the Premiership for English players is something like, well... 32%. That's right, 32%. Whereas the Germans and the Spanish and the Italians are far superior to that. So the parents and the players are under no uh, illusion that it's going to be easy. They, they need to know what the circumstances are. They need to know what the consequences are of what they do. Um, and so we try and be as honest with them to explain exactly what it is that you're going into, what are the ramifications uh, of going into that, what's necessary to try and survive in that. But there's no guarantee. No guarantee. Thank you very much for your time, Dick. Much you're appreciated. Welcome. You're welcome. Thank you.